Today, we are going to continue in the book of Joshua, and one of the reasons I'm excited to be able to go in this, uh, into this passage in chapter 8 is there are key passages in Scripture. Uh, all Scripture is beneficial, but there are, are certain Scriptures that just capture the vision of the story of God as it goes from Genesis to Revelation all throughout this scripture. And one of those passages we're going to be going over today. In fact, what we're going to be looking at is God's family, the people of Israel, they're going to be putting on a worship service, a worship gathering. And I think what's so beautiful about looking back in the Old Testament, looking back at a story that happened thousands of years ago where people are coming and centering their worship upon Jesus is it invites us, It invites us to capture the vision of why we come here. Why do we gather every single week? Why do we gather beyond just the week as God's people? What is the point behind that? So maybe you are here, you're new to the faith. Maybe you've just got that question of, man, I don't even know really who God is, but I'm curious. I'm glad you're here, and I'm glad we get to go through this passage together. So I just want to set us up a little bit before we jump into Joshua with a couple questions. What is your motivation for each day? Why do you get up in the morning? How do you get through the losses of life? And how do you capitalize on the victories? What determines success for you? Or maybe what a loss is in your life? These questions, if you sat alone for a few hours and just pondered these, these would reveal what your vision for life is. Now, if you're in the business world, or maybe you're like me and you're you're in the church world, vision is kind of this word that gets tossed around a lot. But I think in the everyday life, we don't think about that. What is vision? What does it mean? And how does it pertain to life? Andy Stanley had this definition for vision that I thought was helpful Vision is about what could be and should be. So let me give you a couple of examples and how you see vision every day and how it sticks out to you in different stories. It could be a story like if you've ever seen the movie The Pursuit of Happiness, which was based on a real story about um, a businessman, Chris Gardner, and how he went from being homeless, a single dad, to all of a sudden becoming this business success, becoming a stockbroker, and he goes from rags to riches. It's inspiring. He had this vision to bring himself and his family out of poverty, but not even just out of poverty. There was a vision for something greater behind that. And so when we watch films about these real-life stories, we end it rooting for these guys and inspired and wondering, maybe I could find that trajectory in my life. Something that's happening right now is March Madness, for any of you who are college basketball fans. I'm actually not really a college basketball fan, but it just so happened that a couple weeks ago I watched a game that happened with a small little school. It was a Catholic school. I think there, uh, it was like 3,000 students go to that, really small in the, in, in the realm of universities. Um, and in fact, they're called the St. Peter Peacocks probably not going to expect much from that basketball team. And yet they took down some of the biggest names in college basketball. They took down the Kentucky Wildcats. They took down a few others. And what that is and why it's inspiring for millions of people 
is everyone's waiting for those Cinderella stories, is what they call them in college basketball. That there would be this team that's ranked the lowest, all of a sudden take down the Giants and hopefully get to that place where they're in the championship. Unfortunately, my metaphor ends there because they lost today. But <laughs> the whole point behind it is that those things inspire us. When you see these scrappy college students that are at a low-funded school all of a sudden make these drives and they got this vision, they see themselves getting to that championship and holding up the trophy. Or maybe if you're a history buff, it's those military victories and stories like the Battle of Britain where Nazi Germany had run over lots of European countries and they're coming after this small island nation and they're left to fend for themselves. In fact, Winston Churchill, who was leading the, 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 the charge at that time, put it this way right before the battle, the right to guide the course of world history is the noblest prize of victory. That's vision right there. He saw beyond just a simple battle. It wasn't more than just surviving. He's like, if we're able to win, if we're able to survive, we actually will have an effect, a good effect, upon world history. So these stories often are motivational. Why? Because vision is what gives us purpose, hope, confidence, and meaning. It's usually what's driving us when we get up each day. In fact, it's when we have a lack of vision Oftentimes that we fall into depression, anxiety, anger, so many things because we don't know where we're going or why we even exist. So let me give you another word that matches up with this. Worship. You see, worship is the action that occurs when we put everything on the line to follow a vision. Because that's the other aspect of those stories that's inspiring. It's not simply that there was a good vision. It's that people put everything on the line to see the, those visions happen and become a reality. It's the basketball team that's working harder than these, these richer schools and more well-funded schools. It's this businessman who had this vision in his mind and he did everything that he could to make, make it happen. In fact, what's uninspiring is when someone may talk a good vision, but they're not doing anything to see it happen. So then, coming back to worship. Worship is the action that occurs when we put it all on the line to follow vision. This is where we intersect with Joshua. You see, we're in chapter 8. We're right at the end, and we're in the middle of a war that's happening. God has led his people, the Israelites, his family. They're moving into the promised land, and the hope is, the vision is, is that that land becomes a bastion for worship of goodness, of rightness, but there is evil in the land and the Israelites are coming into contact with that. They are battling against Canaanite tribes, but it's not just about the Canaanites. It's bigger than that. It's God versus evil. And so in the middle of this war, we're welcomed into this scene in Joshua 8. If you want to turn there, starting in uh, verse 8. So they've just gone through two battles. God has led them to success. And now there's a moment, right in the middle of, the, of this war, where they come to two mountaintops. It's Joshua 8, verse 3. It says this, At that time Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. 
And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native-born, with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests, who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at the first to bless the people of Israel. And afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. Let's pray. God in heaven, we come before you. We, become, we come before the authority of your word. As we continue our worship this afternoon, we just ask that we would hold your word as precious. God, that we would order our lives around you. Um, that we would lower ourselves underneath your power and authority, your goodness, your love. God, would we walk away with here with just a refreshed vision of worship and what it means and, and why coming here is just so critical that we gather as a people to celebrate you, to worship together, not just on one day of the week, but all days of the week, Jesus. God, as we worship in our lives, let all our worship be directed and centered around you, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. So the main point for today, as we look at the, the, the war on evil that's happening in Joshua, which is the same war that we're involved in today, the main point we're looking at is we fight with right worship. Let me say that again. We fight with right worship. So we're going to walk through this passage. First, we're going to look at what hijacked worship looks like. And then we're going to walk through and look at how right worship is centered on God, right worship is established on God's word, and right worship is lived out by God's people. So first of all, hijacked worship. When we're, we're talking about worship, what do we mean? First of all, all of life is worship. You are worshiping whether you like it or not. That's just the reality of how we live. And the question is, is what are you worshiping? You see, the Hebrew word for worship and what it means is to, it's depressed. It's, if you think about a depression in the earth and what that means, it's a lowering. And so, what it is used for when you read through the Old Testament at times is this idea of like a servant who prostrates himself before a Lord, someone who is of lower status before someone who is of higher status. And so when we worship something or someone, we're putting ourselves under that person or thing. We are trusting in their power. We're trusting in what they are or what that thing is. Another way to look at worship is it has to do with order. Um, that's why if you, if you go to a church, or you may have heard this term, there's an order of worship, a way that we uh, structure things and how we operate on a Sunday in order to worship, in our case, Jesus. And that might seem strange at first until maybe you ask this question, what are you ordering your life around? So think about it. In a worship gathering, we um, start off with people coming in the door. They get their coffee. They get their water. It's a way to start getting community going. It's, it's a way for conversation to happen, for people to be welcomed in 
to our church family. And then we might have an announcement, a little bit of call to worship as we're like, hey, by the way, get your water, come in, we're going to get started soon. We move into singing, which helps prepare our heart by not only just the vocal expression, but by hearing the gospel through the means of singing and music and what that looks like. And it gets our heart ready for the central point of our gathering, which is the word. Not only the word that's being instructed here, but there's a word being instructed over there with the kids as well. And then we finish up with more singing in a response to what we hear here. But now think about your life. You wake up in the morning. How do you order your life? What are the things that are in place? What, what, what's driving you? What, what's causing you to make certain decisions to, that you do during the day? You're ordering your life around someone. You can order your life around sports, work, calendar, kids, This is why we have phrases like he's married to his job more than his wife. Why? Because that's indicating someone who's ordered their life all around work, and that's the highest priority in their life. So everything is falling underneath work. And the person may be trusting in the power of work to fulfill them. So now we come to this term of hijacked worship and what that looks like. If you go back to Genesis we see the Garden of Eden as one massive worship celebration. God has created the earth. He has created Adam and Eve. They're living in his presence. In fact, when you look at day seven when God provides rest, I had someone explain it to me. Notice how there's no end. Like the intention is is the rest continues. It, It floods the whole relationship with God and Adam and Eve And it's beautiful. But then, what happens? See, God's supposed to be the center upon which Adam and Eve have ordered their whole life. They're supposed to follow the commands that he gives in chapter 1 to subdue the earth, to follow him, and to multiply and fill the earth. But what does Satan do? Well, if you look at chapter 3, verse 5, we read this. For God knows, this is Satan speaking, that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So what's the temptation going on here? It's a temptation of worship. It's to grab Adam and Eve's attention of ordering their life around God to ordering their life around something or someone else. And that something or someone else happens to be them. That they become the authority. That they become like God. And they're the ruler of their destiny, of their purpose, and what happens when we have hijacked worship. Well, imagine it this way. If God's the creator, the life giver, he's God, and you get cut off from that life source, what's going to be the result? It's like stepping on an air hose to a scuba diver. At some point, they're going to pass out and die. It might not happen immediately, But at some point, that's what's going to happen. And that's what hijacked worship does. So if you look at 1 John 2, 16 through 17, it gives us an idea of what corrupt worship looks like. It says this, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. 
But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So if you're putting your hope and trust in the things of the world or in yourself, eventually it's going to pass away. That is a guaranteed fact. But right worship, worship that is centered on God, there's a promise that God will abide with us forever. Romans 1, 24 through 25 says this, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. That's Romans 1, 24 through 25. Look, rock stars get depressed. Successful businessmen can often ruin families. Pastors in our culture can be some of the most corrupt people. Why is that? It's because worship has been hijacked. Because God's no longer the center of that, and people put their trust in something else. Rock stars, it may be fame. Successful businessmen, it can be wealth. For pastors, it can be the appreciation of people. And all of us here are tempted in some way or another in the case of our worship. I like this um, quote. In fact, it's from a really great website that Mike Donaldson uh, cued me into a long time ago. It's called gotquestions.org, which sounds kind of janky, but it actually has some of really profound um, uh, truths from Scripture. They put it this way, a biblical theology of worship leads to the conviction that worship is a lifestyle, not a moment in time. See 1 Corinthians 10.31. Our lives are to be dedicated to the worship and service of God. Worship is to be more than a temporary experience-oriented activity on Sunday, after which we revert to our normal life for the rest of the week. True worship is constant inner praise to the God of Scripture, expressed in prayer, in song, in service, in giving, and in living. Our life is worship. It's just a question of what are you worshiping, and how you are ordering your life around that vision. Where are your passions and desires directed? So now, we're jumping back to Joshua. We're at this point where as we read through Scripture, there's this war going on, God and evil, and the desire, God's against evil and for our worship. So, going back to that passage, we're going to look first of all how worship, right worship, centers on God. So Joshua 8, looking at 30 through 31, it says, at that time Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Abal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. So what do we find here? If ever you're reading in Scripture, I want to encourage you. It's a a way to unpack a passage, is asking four questions. Who is God, first of all? Who is he? What does this passage reveal about God? Because if this is his word, if this is truth, that's got to be the first and most important question we ask. What does this say about God? And then what is God doing? What are his actions? Thirdly, then, to ask is, okay, if who God is and what God does is what defines my identity, who I am, and then how I live my life. That's vision. 
So when we look at these two verses, what do we see as far as God is concerned? First of all, that God is the object of worship. Think about this for a minute. If we're worshiping something and it is part of this temporary world, at some point it's going to run out, it's going to be exhausted, but God is, an, is a person that is eternal and cannot be exhausted. What I love at the beginning of this statement is, is it just doesn't say to the Lord, but to the Lord, the God of Israel. When you start seeing titles mount up about God, it's drawing your attention and it's drawing you to that question of asking, who is God? Who is he? Yahweh, the one true God, the God who says he's above every other God. In fact, if you, if you look over at Psalms 95, when we were doing our prayer time um, at, at 3 p.m., we were looking at this psalm and using it to direct our prayer. But it says this in Psalm 95, verse 3, it says, For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. There's no authority or power that is above this God. He's the only one worth being the center, the object. And so when you look at this worship gathering that's happening in Joshua, they have the Ark of the Covenant, which is the representation of the presence of God, and it's sitting right in between these two hilltops. It's the center. It's the object of worship. I like this uh, quote from J.I. Packer that helps us understand this. There is no peace like the peace of those whose minds are possessed with full assurance that they have known God and God has known them and that this relationship guarantees God's favor to them in life through death and on forever. This is the eternal God, the only person worth centering and ordering our life around. It's the only thing that is inexhaustible. And you see, this idea about knowing God, it, it, it's like intimately knowing your wife in a marriage relationship between a husband and a wife, a wife knowing her husband, a husband knowing her wife, that it's, it's more than just knowledge. It's more than just reciting facts that, that you read about in here. In fact, that's no vision at all. When you get a vision, when you get worship, it's intoxicating. It's what drives you. It, what, it's what keeps you going when your life is going off the rails. It's what your successes are all wrapped around, and this is the kind of knowledge of God that's being talked about here, a knowledge of God that creates worship, not a knowledge that's for just your own pride. This is the kind of God that we need to know. If we look into this also, we see other aspects, little hints about this God, just even in these few verses. He's the creator revealed by creation. There's that little note in there about how this altar that they're creating for worship of God, it's made of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. Think about that for a minute. We, we should get this here in Fairbanks. We've got the Chena River. If you go up Chena Pump, or not Chena Pump Road, but uh, Chena Hot Springs Road in the summertime, there's all these campgrounds that are along there. And if you go and fish along the river or go hang out along there, there's these beautiful rocky beaches that are along there, uncut stones that demonstrate the raw potential creative energy that God used when he formed this earth, not touched by man. It's God's creation. It's God's work. And even these stones used to build this, uh, this altar 
are this reference to the fact that creation is God's and it is crying out his praises. It is worshiping him and we need to listen. If he is the creator of stones, how much more significant is it that he created us? That's what this is calling us to. Not only this, but we see that he is the gracious judge. This is in the time of the Old Testament. So they're offering burnt offerings to the Lord and they sacrifice peace offerings. See, the reality that scripture reveals is that sinful humanity deserves the bear, the guilt of sin, and that the only way to remove sin is through death. And so the reason that there are sacrifices in the Old Testament is it's these animals that take our place that we deserve. If you go back to Genesis, you'll see that after Adam and Eve rebelled against God, that he clothes them in what? The skins of animals. Why? Because that was a sacrifice in place of them and what they deserved. And so we see this with the peace offering. You can look at Leviticus in the first couple of chapters. It describes in detail what the peace offerings is. But it's there for a fallen humanity to make peace with God. He is not just simply a judge, but a gracious judge who offers ways for us to be redeemed, to be saved. And so, let's, as we look at God in that light, and you read along in the story of God in the Bible, this anticipates Jesus. It anticipates Jesus. Because Jesus, God come among man, fully God, fully human. It was God come into our neighborhood, into the world. He walked in our skin. He suffered like we suffered. And ultimately, he'd suffer in our place. There's this beautiful prayer, another key scripture in the Bible that you should spend a lot of time meditating on is John 17. The whole chapter is a prayer of Jesus before he goes to the cross. In John 17, 3, it says this, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and what? And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent Jesus is the one who can't run out. The the offering, the peace offering in this passage is anticipating the greater offering that Jesus would make on the cross, that he would finalize peace. In fact, he could provide eternal peace between fallen humanity and God for all those who would put their faith in him. And so when we see that, when we understand Jesus is God, when we understand the sacrifice that, that he gives, and understand it at the level of our heart where we put our faith in him, then we order our life around him. We worship him. This is what faith looks like. It looks like worship. So right worship is centered on God. It's centered on Jesus. Right worship is established in his word. So Joshua 8.32 says this, And there in the presence of the people of Israel, Joshua wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And then if you skip down to 34 through 35, it says, And afterward he, Joshua, read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. So there's a couple of things I want to point to in this. Again, this is a worship gathering that's happening. God's family come together to center their worship on Jesus. And it shows that Right worship is established in God's word. 
This is why we preach the word every Sunday. This is why we teach kids every Sunday. And it's a launching point that you're ordering your life around the word throughout the week. It's not just that we're doing this on Sunday. It's also when we're preaching up here, it's not about the preacher. It's about the family. It's about us ordering our lives around this word. Right worship is established in his word through writing. How amazing is it? We take it for granted now that we live in this time where not only do we have printed a, a bunch of printed copies of the Word, but we can pull it up on our phone and we can cross-reference and do all this cool stuff and look at the original Greek and Hebrew. But how beautiful is it that even back at this time there is a written Word of God that is here, the Old Testament, or the first five books of the Old Testament. How beautiful is that? How beautiful is it that not only is it through writing that his word is passed on, but it's through speaking. It's not just that we can read it, but then you look at it. They, they spoke it. They read what Moses had written down. Every word. May we not lose sight of that in our worship, that this is key, that we are established in the word of God. And the message specifically that they are bringing out it's referenced by those, uh, those, those two ideas, the, the curse and the blessing that we see in 34. If you look at Deuteronomy 27 through 28, and I'd encourage you, if you want some time in the Word this week and you don't know where to go, go to Deuteronomy 27 through 28. It's beautiful. It's, it's this exhortation given by Moses in preparation for the family of Israel to be going into the Promised Land. But he makes it very clear, very stark what's at stake. And he basically is expounding on the fact that if, if Israel orders their life, if their life is a worship to God, they're going to experience blessing. They're going to be able to move into the promised land. They're going to find victory in their battles. Um, they're going to receive blessing in their relationships and family life. Blessing in their work and effort, blessing for provisions for life, battles against evil, they're standing before God and others. All that is blessed. Every area is covered when you read through this. There's a blessing. But then there's this other side to it. There's the curse. And all the areas that were mentioned in the blessing are also mentioned in the curse, that if they did not follow God in his ways, that there would be a curse. And if we look at it through the eyes of, of kind of modern-day readers, it can be a little shocking, like, wow, that seems pretty stark. Like, if you screw up, like, you're going to experience curse, and, and if you're able to pull it off, you're going to experience blessing. But this, this is the reality of life in a sinful, broken world, isn't it? it? One of the things about Joshua that can be daunting is you'll come across these very violent moments within the book. And it hit me as I was studying it how often that can be this really specific focus of, of trouble when we read this book. And yet there's violence in this city. There is violence that's happening right now in this city. There, there are things happening behind closed doors that would make you vomit. In this city... There's still violence going on today. There are still wars happening. Evil has caused this. Sin has caused this. And we're all culpable. We're all 
sinners when it comes to this. And that's why when we look at these passages that talk about the blessing and the curse, it should make us question. It should make us wonder, like, how do we escape this? How can we be enough for this? That's in um, Deuteronomy. I, I forgot to put the verse reference here, but it says this. You shall only go up and not down if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, being careful to do them. And if you do not turn aside from any of the words which I command you today, to the right hand or to the left, to go after other gods to serve them. See, what we need to see here is a precursor to the gospel. This is why Joshua is so valuable. It's the Old Testament is meant to set up the stage for Jesus to come. It's to make us realize that we are hopeless. We aren't able to follow. If you turn to the next book in the Bible, Judges, guess what happens to Israel? They don't keep God's word. And these curses come upon them because that's the effect of sin in a broken and fallen world. But then, what? What can save sinful humanity? Israel would fail, and if, if you are like me in living this life, man, I fail all the time, all the time. And so that's why in establishing ourselves in the word for proper worship, it means we establish ourselves in Jesus. Establishing ourselves in Jesus. You see that Jesus is the greatest communication because he is God come among humanity. That's why he's also described as the word. I mean, think about it. The word, God's word, the Bible, it communicates truths about God. Well, Jesus comes into a fallen world and he, he literally communicates God to humanity in what he does. How beautiful is that? Jesus came to bear that curse. That's why he came. If you're feeling the effects of the curse today, you're feeling that brokenness, that violence, the tragedies that are done in every day, whether it's in conversations or how we interact with different people, we feel it all the time. Jesus came to bear that on the cross because we could not bear it. He came to give us life through his resurrection so the promises of God could be true for us. He is the greatest blessing Catch that as we look at Joshua. He's the one who takes on the curse of sin and then becomes the ultimate blessing for eternal life. It's all found on Jesus. That's what this is looking forward to. Second Peter chapter 1, uh, 3 through 4 says this. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. He's our blessing. He is our hope. So if you feel the weight of a broken world on your shoulders, and I remember in my own story very clearly when it came to that point of brokenness in my life, where it came to a spot where I realized I was completely corrupt. It was a moment where I realized, oh, that's how Hitler could become Hitler. All of us are capable of that. All of us, because of what sin does in our lives, it drives us to that point. That's what the curse of sin does. But thank God for Jesus, because he can reverse the curse. 
Thank God for Jesus, who when we're established in him, we have life. The whole Bible is a description of this battle of worship. You see, Satan's hope is to get you off of worship of Jesus. He doesn't want you to experience the eternal blessing that is Jesus Christ and faith in him. This is why we center on Jesus every single Sunday to the point where some of you might even get tired of it. I hope you don't get tired of it, but that's why we do it. Because just like this worship gathering that happened with Joshua and the Israelites, why did they have to do that? Because they were at war. Because there was high stakes going on of a turn, and their only means of being able to find victory was in their relationship with God. It wasn't their battle strategies. It wasn't the weapons that they were using. It was all based on their relationship with God. And it's the same thing with our battle today. Another great passage to look at is Ephesians 6, where it describes the armor of God. I encourage you, if you take a look at that, as it describes that armor and how we fight the spiritual warfare, each piece of that armor is our identity within Jesus. It's all provided by Jesus. We don't depend on our breastplate of righteousness. We have to depend on the righteousness of Jesus. It's not our own salvation that covers our head. It's the salvation that Jesus offers. It's not our good news that's the shotting of our feet. It's God's good news. It's not our truth that's the, the, the belt. It's God's truth. It's not the sword of our spirit that we fight with. It's God's spirit, the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is who we need to be established in. So we gather on Sundays and we have worship gatherings every week because we establish ourselves in Jesus. We gather in our small groups, our gospel communities every week because it's more than just Sunday. It's an everyday life and it's good to gather in smaller groups during the week. Why? To center ourselves on Jesus and the gospel. It's critical. It is vital. What are you established in today? What's your grounding? What's your foundation? Is it Jesus or is it something else? Because if it's something else other than Jesus, it's something that's temporal. It's something that's going to get exhausted at some point and you're going to be left with nothing. So right worship is not only established in the word, established in Jesus, but right worship is lived out through God's people. Let's go back to Joshua chapter 8. Joshua chapter 8, verse 33, it says, And all Israel, sojourner as well as native-born, with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on the opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at first to bless the people of Israel. And then if you look at the last verse, verse 35, it says, There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. I love this passage. Look, look at the, the titles of, of the people who are here. It's the judges, the officers, the elders, there's leaders who are there, the sojourner. There are people who were joining the family of Israel Think back to Ruth at the beginning of Joshua. There are people who were not native-born, but who came to worship God, the one true God, Yahweh. The women, the children, this is a family affair. They're fighting as a family, and they're worshiping as a family too. 
We are all worshipers of God together. We have different roles, different responsibilities, but we all center together around Jesus and lead one another to worship Jesus. This is the vision of what worship looks like. This is why we do what we do as the church. So here they are. And what are they doing? They're standing on two hilltops. Might seem kind of weird. All right, they're split up in half, one over here, one over there. They're representing, if you go back and read in Deuteronomy, Moses commanded that they were to do this, that they were to have this worship gathering. And one of the mountains... Um, represents the blessing, all the blessings that Moses talked about. And one represents the curses if they don't follow God's law. And so what's happening? Well, half of them are standing on the blessing. Half of them are standing on the curse. It's for them to bear the weight. They're standing before the law of God. And it's this question, are, are they going to be able to bear the weight? Are they going to be enough? Are they going to keep worshiping God or is their worship going to be hijacked? God knew they were not going to be enough, so he had them stand before the law. And so what does that look like? You know, I can't, I can't help but see an imagery, and I, I'm not going to go so far as to say that this is the intention of this passage. But you have the Ark of the God between peaks, and then you've got on one side the curse, and one side the blessing, and it reminds me very much of Calvary where you've got Jesus in the center on the cross. You've got one guy who's calling on curses upon Jesus and the other one who's crying desperately out to Jesus. You see, when it comes to our actions, when it comes to our righteousness, we're not enough. We talked about that earlier. So what this encourages us is that when right worship is done by the people of God, we, we order our lives in such a ways that is right behind Jesus. That's why Philippians 2, 20 through 21 um, says this. It's a beautiful passage. Sorry, not 2. It's Philippians 1, 20 through 21. It says, As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is vision. This is worship. Paul is saying, my whole life, as it is here, right now, it's all devoted, it's all ordered around Christ. And when I die, what do I get? I get Christ. That's what his vision was. That's what he ordered his life around. That's what he was focused upon. So maybe you're wondering about that. Maybe you've been in this Christian life for a while, and, and, and I've seen the struggle happen often, where... It's that question of like, well, I want to live rightly, but I'm struggling. I'm having a hard time. Yeah, I'll be honest, my hijack is getting, or my worship is getting hijacked. How do we do this? You see, there's this tendency that we can, first of all, run to just trying to force ourselves to be better people. Well, if only I was better, then I could do it. But who, who's the savior in that situation? Who's the God that you're ordering your life around? It's you. You're hoping that you'll be able to come up with enough right actions. And it's so funny how that sabotages our efforts all the time. I'll just force myself to be better. You've got to step back and realize that when we're struggling in following Jesus and living rightly, it's a worship problem. 
It's a heart problem. It's a belief problem that's going on. That happens before you even get to the action. That there's this... There, there's something that you have put in place of Jesus within your heart that leads you to that sin, that affront against God. Or, um, I know someone smart said it, but it was this, this idea that every, underneath every sin is unbelief. You're not believing something about God and Jesus. Or another way to look at it is, is um, that for someone who's wanting to work out and get their body back into shape, They have to really believe that it's going to work. You don't want to be like like in that place where you're like, yeah, I should probably work out. Oh, I'm just going to kind of man up and do it. No, if you don't don't really believe that it's going to help you and get your life better, you're not going to do it. Like it all comes down to the heart when we're following Jesus. That's why we have to align our life on him. That's why we've got to keep looking to Jesus again and again and again. That's why us as believers, even if you've been a believer for a long time and, and maybe you are able to put even more thoughts to this scripture passage or do those things, it's amazing how, man, underneath just the toil and trial of life, our worship can get hijacked and keep us from expressing worship through our actions. So let's go back to Second Peter. Um, in 2 Peter chapter 1, in verse 5, it says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. It's describing someone who's gotten distracted, whose worship has gotten hijacked, and they've gone from living their life as an expression of worship to getting off the sidetrack. And this is the thing. It's like if you've been in that position, what do you do? You remember the vision. You remember the point. You remember the gospel, and you let that drive your life. You know, you think about these, like, basketball teams that are all shooting for this um, championship that's going to be happening. It's like, yeah, you might lose a game in the season. You might face difficulties. You might make mistakes, but you get back onto it. You get back onto the court. You get back into the fight. You, get, you go after Jesus. Our vision at Radiant is to be a radiant reflection of the gospel to our cities and throughout the north by being gospel communities who multiply disciples and churches. We want to see gospel saturation across the north. That is a vision that points to Jesus. That is a vision as a church that's shared by other Radiant churches across the state. Why do we have a vision statement like that? Because it keeps us centered on Jesus. It keeps us remembering what the main thing is. It's based off of Matthew 28, 18 through 20. What's the instruction? What's the action that Jesus gives us in there? He says, um, and Jesus came and said to them, his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, 
I am with you always to the end of the age. That's a promise that you can count on. That's a promise that you can live by. It's not that you're out there doing it on your own. No, you're doing it in the power of Jesus Christ. And your worship is to make disciples and keep making disciples, to keep proclaiming the gospel. And that's what we hope when we gather every week on a Sunday is we proclaim the gospel here. It's not just a preacher who comes up and proclaims the gospel. It's you as well. What are the truths that the Holy Spirit is is tapping on your heart right now that you need to share with someone else? What what is the message that he is giving to you that he might use uh, in a divine encounter this week, a divine conversation where you need to have your ears open, where your eyes need to be focused on the vision that God has given you and let that order your life. See it as that wealth of eternal life that he has promised, that eternal blessing that can only come through Jesus Christ. Vision is crucial. Worship is crucial. But I was like thinking about this. Man, we can get so excited about a movie, you know, that has such great vision in it, like the Avengers or something, you know, at the very end of it, and Thanos is defeated, and it's like, oh, yeah, all right, Thanos is defeated. And then it feels like we come to the Bible and we're like, yay, Jesus, all right, let's go. You know, I was like wondering, why, why do I have that in me? Why, why do I get so excited by a futuristic movie about aliens more than I do about the Bible. Because it's not about me. Have you ever thought about that? Worship of God means it's not worship of you, and everything in our culture is pointing us to worship ourselves. Because when we watch movies with superheroes and stuff, it's... uh, it is ridiculous, but when I watch movies like that, I mean, even as an adult, I'm thinking of myself as like Spider-Man, you know, like swinging through the city or like destroying things like Hulk. Like you, you get wrapped up in the movie and by the end you're like, yeah, I could be this person. I could do this. So who am I worshiping? I'm worshiping myself. It's so easy to get excited about things about myself and what I could be. But when, when it turns to the worship of something or someone else when it turns to God. How, I think that's why. It's almost like going from sweets to vegetables where it's like, whoa, this doesn't really taste that good anymore. And yet that's what promises life. That's why we fight by our worship. That's why we order our lives around God. It might not be appealing at first because our flesh desires that we're at the center. But if we're able to center our life on Jesus, all the promises he gives are there. And if you're wondering why this, why God does what he does, he is fighting for you. He knows that if our lives are centered on him, we get to experience that life, that love, that blessing that comes with it. Like there are good things that a father wants us to experience. And it can only come when we put our faith in him and worship him. So right worship in the end is all about Jesus. We need someone to help us live this vision rightly. He is our God that we worship. He is the true and better word that we are established in. He is the only person who could live rightly. So how do we live? We live in Christ. Right worship keeps us fighting on God's terms, not on our own terms. And we'll find life that way. So we're going we're gonna to close in response. And in our response, we sing. 
It's a way for us to be able to respond to the truths of Scripture and God's Word. Just like, you know, singing wasn't mentioned in that Joshua 8 passage. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't, I don't know. But it's a way for us to speak the words of God to each other, to one another. We also take communion. We've got three communion areas up here and in the back. And, and what that's for is for us who've gotten the vision of the gospel, who've put our faith in Jesus Christ. It keeps us coming back to that vision. And what a radical vision it is. It's this expression, communion is, where we got this little wafer that represents the body of Jesus Christ, a little bit of juice that represents the blood. And what does Jesus say? If you read through the Gospel of John, he, he's like, eat of me. Why? Because he's inexhaustible. You can't run out of him. Because we're trying to consume and eat things every day that are exhaustible, that do eventually lead to nothing. That's why if a rock and roll artist is eating fame, it's going to lead to depression. Why? Because it's not enough. But Jesus is enough, which is why we take communion every week as a church and why I want to encourage you, worship God by taking communion. And if you're in that place where you've, you're realizing, man, I think my worship has gotten hijacked. Yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus, but it's been hijacked. Run to the table and repent and come to God and say, God, I've been worshiping something, whatever that thing is, whatever that person is, I've been worshiping it over you. Lay it down before him because he's a good God who wants you, who will love you. Like with the prodigal son where the father embraces his muddy son who's been sleeping with pigs and he welcomes him back as he comes to repentance. Maybe that's you today and you need to run to your father's arms with all that mess on it and stand in the shower of grace. Maybe you're here today and you don't know Jesus, or you're wondering who God is. If you want to know who God is, you've got to look to Jesus. You've got to look to the cross. You've got to look to the resurrection when he rose three days later after taking the punishment of sin upon himself. And what he desires of you is to order your life around him and stop ordering your life around other things, to cry out to him, to put your faith fully and completely in him. And maybe you're just in the tough battle right now. You're facing tragedy. You're facing the, the violence of this world. You're in the middle of the battle. Come take communion. That's what these guys did. They came and they stood between those two hilltops. Why? To order their lives around God and his word. To worship him. So we want to do that now. And when we're done, when we're done with the singing, we... And we leave this place, the worship doesn't stop. It keeps going. Let's pray. God in heaven, we come before you and we know that we're no better than those Israelites. On our own, we're no better. God, they had this beautiful moment of worship and I think there's, there's those times where we get that too. We get those moments of beautiful worship and then it seems like minutes and then we're, we're stuck in the mud our worship has been hijacked, and we're broken. So Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you came to the cross. Thank you that you provided something that we could have a vision for. That you call us to look um, beyond to your second coming. That there's going to be an Eden 2.0 where we get to be with you forever and enjoy the blessing for eternity. God, I just pray against Satan and his work within our body, within our church. Man, um, 
God, I just pray that if there are things that we have ordered our life around that it's not you, God, help us to be a community of repentance. And not just repentance on our own, but we repent as a family together. Jesus, thank you that you bore the curse for us and that you provided an eternal blessing. So God, I pray for each person who's here as they go into this week. I just pray for divine encounters where they might meet someone who doesn't know you and be able to just celebrate and say, I have blessing because of Jesus. No other reason. I have life because of Jesus. No other reason. God, would we order our lives around you? Would we kneel before you and praise you? It's in your name we pray. Amen.